You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I am not saying that he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who has been born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. So I first want to allay two fears you might have. Uh, smaller pulpit does not mean we're putting less emphasis on the Word of God, so you can set that fear aside. The other is smaller pulpit does not mean my sermons will be shorter, so you can also put that fear aside. Um, in Sinclair's Ferguson book, Maturity, Growing Up and Going On in the Christian Life, he claims that there are two concerns that many believers wrestle with. He says the first has to do with how can you know what God's will is for your life? Second concern, he says, that many Christians struggle with is how can you be certain of your salvation? And it's that second concern. How can you really be certain of your salvation that we want to look at this morning? And that, that is the theme that runs through 1 John. That is a question that John needs to help his audience understand. Uh, so open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. And we're going to look to see what God has to say through the Apostle John here that would offer counsel and encouragement uh, related to the question, can you be certain of your salvation? Keep in mind that this was written about 60 years after Christ's resurrection, and yet the clarity and conviction and confidence that these words emanate tell us it is just as true today as then that we can be certain. And, and why? And what does it mean to address this question? So we're going to look at it from sort of three different tiers or levels. One is simply questions of assurance. Well, why, why is that a matter that sometimes we wrestle with? Then secondly, looking at what are the grounds of assurance of salvation? And then finally, what's the evidence of assurance of salvation? Let's start at the first tier, and that is simply questions about assurance. Uh, the fact that this would even come up in a New Testament letter written to not one specific church, but meant to be circulatory and passed around, 
says that this is a very relevant question for many Christians. How, how can I be certain that I'm saved? How can I know tomorrow, no matter what happens, that, that I am saved, that my sins are forgiven? And so as you think about this, consider there's sort of maybe three options when it comes to the question of assurance. On, on the one side over here, you have absolute certainty. You know you are saved. Then way over here, you have no certainty. And if you've rejected Christ, then there's no certainty because you don't have any big. In the middle, there's another option that troubles the writer of this letter. And that is, what about false assurance? When you think you are saved and you are not. So notice what 1 John chapter 5 as you look at this passage, you notice verse 13, and we'll come back to this verse a couple of different times. But this summarizes the entire epistle of 1 John. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. So the primary audience here is I'm writing to believers who have questions, who maybe have doubts about the assurance of their salvation. But then look with me at chapter 2 of 1 John, chapter 2, verses 18 through 21. You see John express earlier this concern about those who have a false assurance of salvation and the impact that has on those maybe who had some knowledge of these individuals. 1 John 2, Verses 18 through 21, dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Think of this scene where there's these false teachers, and John does not specifically label them. We have some indications that they are teaching against an accurate understanding of the nature of Christ, who Jesus is. But they at one point were a part of the church. In other words, they gave the appearance of having salvation, of being those genuinely children of God. He's not referring here to people who just transitioned to a new church in membership or they moved to a new area. And now they're not in your church. They go somewhere else. He's talking about these who were in our group, but now by their actions, their teaching clearly show that they are not one of us that they genuinely were not true children of God. And I think when we come to the subject of assurance, we, we need to always ask ourselves, not just are we on that one level over here, I have full assurance, but, but are you clear on why you have full assurance? Because there's only one thing worse than having full assurance, and that is having false assurance. Consider what Jesus would say very early in his ministry. And teaching his own core group of disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, 
when you tell them, you know, there's going to come a day when, when people will stand before me and there'll be some saying, well, Lord, I, I did this. I did that. I prophesied. I did all these things. And he will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. Now, we used to be buddies. You used to be kind of with me. You used to be saved. But he says, I, I never knew you. Again, hitting at that head of false assurance. But there's something else that I think maybe resonates a little closer to us, and that is, well, what if you sometimes struggle with the question of just assurance for yourself? I think the Puritans did a, a very good job at addressing this question, which I think often as we think of in the modern church today, we, we don't so much talk about how do you know you're saved? We, we just kind of assume people come every week, we know each other pretty well. well. Of course, you're a Christian. I'm a Christian. But do we realize that the reality is that you can be clear that you are saved and yet wrestle with questions of assurance? In other words, I think we have a tendency to think if someone were to come to us as a Christian and say, you know, sometimes I, I just wrestle with, did God really forgive me of this? Am I truly his? That our tendency might be to jump to say to them, well, you're just spiritually immature. Uh, you know, just, just get over that. Uh, you know, if you really are growing in Christ, that, that wouldn't be an issue anymore. What the Puritans tended to do is, is parse that a little more clearly and say, you know what? You can be clear that you are saved, but you may still at times wrestle with the assurance of your salvation. And you can see this testified into some of the creeds and confessions. So for example, in the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, you have this statement that the infallible assurance of salvation does not belong to the essence of faith. In other words, what they were saying there is there is infallible assurance and we'll see why when we look at the grounds of assurance. But at the same time, it's not an element of the faith or essence of the faith and that you can truly be a Christian and yet wrestle at times with questions about assurance. I remember when my one grandmother was quite elderly and I was off at Bible school and I came home for some break or something. Uh, my mother wanted me to, to go talk to her a little bit because she said my, my grandmother at times wrestled with the question of assurance. Now, if you knew my grandmother, you'd be like, well, why would she? She was such a godly woman, and, and that was clearly evident. And I think that sort of makes the point. You may be sitting next to someone who genuinely knows Christ, but deep in their heart sometimes they, they just struggle with the question of assurance. And so we need to be very much aware of that. Additionally, the Westminster Confession goes on to say this to all believers. You may have your assurance shaken, diminished, and intermitted at times. But in time, it will be restored. Isn't that godly counsel? Rather than saying to someone or thinking yourself, gee, here I am, a Christian, what's wrong with me? I, I sort of struggle with this sometimes. 
Rather than saying someone saying to you, we just need to grow up. Imagine someone saying, you know what? That's, that's to be expected in the Christian life. It will be attacked at times. It will be diminished. It will be interrupted in your life. But it will always be restored and experienced in God's timing. I can't help but wonder if part of this comes from a statement that Jesus would say to Peter. And I'll just read for you from Luke 22. Uh, you will recognize it immediately. When Jesus will say these words, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times, and that you know me. Wouldn't Peter be a perfect example of someone who must have wrestled at times with assurance of his faith? And I base that not just on these words, Jesus saying, Satan will want to sift you like wheat. Notice Jesus doesn't say, I pray that Satan doesn't do that to you. But in his sovereignty, he says, I pray that you will not fail when that happens. That when those times, as the Westminster Confession says, when your faith is shaken, your assurance is rattled, that you would experience God's grace. So when it comes to questioning assurance, the fact that John addresses this in his epistle, in his letter, saying this is a reality that can happen in the Christian life. And if you're at that point, or you've been at that point, or you may heady be in, into that point and that struggle, you're not alone. But now we move to the second tier or level. And that is, what are the grounds of assurance of salvation? Because maybe too often in our own hearts and lives, we, we base assurance on how we feel. So if I feel like I'm in the presence of God, if I feel encouraged by what I just read in Scripture, I'm thinking I'm okay with God. Now clearly that can't be the best means of direction because you even have Paul telling us during communion, everyone is to examine themselves to see where they stand in the faith. He didn't pick a word that would imply, check your emotions. How do you feel right now? Do you feel close to God? Do you not feel close to God? But the sense of a, a thorough searching and examination, but what would that be based on? So let's look a little bit at the assurance of salvation. Again, go back to 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13. And you fill in the word that I leave out. I write these things to you who in the name of the Son of God, so that you, that you have eternal life. So here's the whole thrust of this letter, that, that you would hear these things, and in the midst of your questioning, you would still be able to assess that in terms of the assurance. But what is that assurance based on? 
two very powerful truths. The first is the character of God and the promises of God. And so you see this in verse 13, where notice he says, to those who believe in the name of the Son of God, and then go down to verse 18, and he refers to anyone who is born of God. In other words, John sees those two as synonymous. If you believe in the name of the Son of God and what Scripture reveals of him, and you are born of God, those are one and the same realities. And notice that word believe is emphasizing a confidence, a trust in. So the certainty and assurance of our salvation is based on first the very character of God and the promises of God. So when we might question and wrestle with that, we need to go back and remind ourselves, what has God said about those who cling to him in faith? Has he promised to, to keep us? Do we have, as it says here, we, we have eternal life. We possess it and hold it even as we speak in Christ Jesus. Yet the full experience of that still awaits us. Now, this was not unique to John alone. He speaks of the assurance of our faith. Then you go to a guy like the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 with his past history, persecutor, killer. But you get to Romans 8, and one of the most amazing chapters in the Bible, some have said it's the best chapter in the Bible. Um, I don't know if I'd agree with that, but it's a good one. Uh, but you want to look at how the chapter begins and it ends, because there's a note of comfort and encouragement in this to every believer, because it begins with there's no condemnation in Christ. And it ends with there's no separation from Christ. And so notice how verse 1 reads, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Again, basing this on full assurance of knowing who Christ is. But then you get to the end of the chapter, listing a series of circumstances, situations that one could possibly throw out there to say, well, aren't these strong enough to shake your assurance of salvation? Paul concludes and says, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And, and you want to think about this phrase where Paul says, nothing in all of creation covers the loophole that anyone could ever find hereafter and say, well, Paul, you didn't mention this. You didn't say about this circumstance. You didn't say my mother-in-law. He says, nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I go back to thinking about John the apostle whom Jesus loved, the unique bond between Jesus and the apostle John. No wonder he speaks so powerfully and poignantly of the assurance of salvation. But if we return to the epistle of John, we see in chapter 5, the second prong to the assurance is not just the character of God and the promises of God, but the work of Jesus Christ 
and the witness of the Holy Spirit. And so you notice in verse 13, which we have read twice, it says, I write these things. Now, that should make you stop and think, what are these things that John's referring to? Well, clearly, everything that's preceded it in this gospel, perhaps we could even extend it back into the first gospel, John, where he wrote about the ministry of Christ, that you might believe that he is the Son of God. But I draw your attention to immediately what preceded this in 1 John 5 and verses 6 through 10, where John there focuses on the work of Christ and the ministry and witness of the Holy Spirit. Notice what he writes in verses 6 through 10. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three in agreement. We accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater, because it is the testimony of God whom he has given about his son. Anyone who believes in the son of God has this testimony in his heart. Anyone who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because he has not believed the testimony God has given about his son. And notice how often in that couple verses, the word testimony crops up. Literally, the, Christ is our witness. He is, it's the root for our word martyr one who is proof of something. So John holds up here, one of the grounds of our assurance is the work of Jesus Christ. Came as both water and in blood. In other words, probably a reference here, not, not to baptism per se, but to Christ's ministry, which began with the baptizing by John the Baptist, where he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and then his death where his blood is shed on our behalf. In other words, the assurance of us, our salvation is based on the work of Jesus Christ, which is something we should remind ourselves of because we live in a very performance-oriented world. A Sunday does not go by when I'm up at Dartmouth and I'm, I'm so much aware of how even for many of these students, they can get caught up in just everyone trying to pass each other and where their internships are, where their next job will be, what, what their GPA is at the moment. It is so easy to get caught up in thinking what we have attained is based on our works. But when you come to salvation, that scale is completely reversed. Our assurance of salvation is not based on anything that you've done or could ever do. If that were the case, then you really have no grounds of assurance that your salvation is only as secure as maybe you are at this very moment. And I think we realize in worship, one of the things that happens is we are humbled and reminded of our utter misery apart from Christ. That we don't come with anything but our sinfulness before him. And so you see in these words in 1 John, this reminder that it's the work of Jesus Christ that is the basis of our assurance. And as well as he mentions the importance of the ministry and testimony of the Holy Spirit. 
Our call of worship this morning was that the Spirit himself bears witness in our hearts that, that our faith in Christ is genuine. It is real. And notice that John's formulation of his argument is that we have arguments that man presents that we believe those. So how much greater now when you look at the argument and the evidence presented by God himself related to assurance and the grounds of our assurance. So we looked at two tiers in John's discussion so far. The simple fact that we, we question our assurance at times. And that is, I believe, a part of the experience of many Christians. And if you're sitting here saying, well, I'm so glad that's not something I struggle with, you should be thankful that you don't. But realize there are Christians, genuine believers, who at times struggle with that in their own hearts and lives. We've talked about the assurance of salvation. But now we move simply to the evidence of your salvation. It's beyond just, well, you know in your heart you're saved, but, but is there evidence of that? And John says, well, yes. And I want to show you what some of that evidence is to, again, confirm your confidence in Christ. And so you notice in 1 John 5, verses 13 through 20, there's a repetition of two very important words, or three if you want, uh, that you may know. And the word know there is stressing a deep understanding, a, a state or condition one is in. So John says, it is God's desire that you know where you stand with him and, and why you stand with him in the way that you do. So in other words, what John does is he verbally affirms that he knows that there are many he's writing to that are fully assured of their faith in Christ. Look with me at 1 John 3 and verse 18. And we have many benefits that come with different translations. It can be a little bit more readable. One area where the NIV is, is just kind of not as good as it could be. In verse 18 of chapter 3, notice John's love and concern for who he's writing with, this affectionate term, dear children or beloved. He writes in chapter 3, verse 18, Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. Now, the word belong there in verse 19 is the word that is better translated to remain or abide. And the reason I'm pointing that out is you don't catch unless you read the entire letter of 1 John in a very sort of literal translation, that 22 times John refers to remaining or abiding throughout the letter. So this word belong is the word remain, which does appear more frequently. So you see this thread that ties the whole book. There is an assurance, a visible display of what it means to belong to Jesus Christ. And John's affirming that just verbally. But he's got to back that up with visibly. Well, what is visible evidence of one's assurance or standing in salvation? 
so this becomes very clear as we go back to 1 John chapter 5. And I'll draw out just four that are seen throughout the letter, but in particularly highlighted here at the end of this letter. So in verses 16 and 17, one of the visible evidences of the assurance of your salvation in Christ is do you have a love for your brothers and sisters in Christ? So you notice in verses 16 and 17, and we won't get into some deeper discussion on this, but he talks about how if you see your brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray for them. And clearly when he's referring to those who commit a sin that does lead to death, he's probably thinking more of these very adamant false teachers, that they, they have sealed their condemnation, they've made very clear. But the thought that John repeatedly will emphasize, how can you say you love God if you don't love your brothers and sisters in Christ? And one of the ways John says that's evident of your salvation is when you see a brother or sister sin, is your immediate impulse to pray for them. Not, not to talk about them, not to immediately think of, I'm so glad that's not me, I'm a, such a better Christian than they are, but, but you're moved to pray for them, spiritually concerned for your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's a visible expression of the assurance the reality of a genuine salvation. But then you notice in verse 14 and 15, I don't think we often equate an assurance of salvation with a confident and bold prayer life. Because he mentions in verses 14 and 15, if we know that we have eternal life, look at how that permeates our prayer life. The confidence we come to before God. The, the conviction that we are desiring to pray in accordance with his will. And even when we're not fully clear on that, we're praying that God would direct us to what his specific will might be. As for example, we might pray for someone who's physically sick. We cannot tell or know exactly, is, is God's will to heal that person? But we're going to pray that way, but also pray ultimately, Lord, we're trusting him. What is your will? in this situation? What will most glorify and honor you? So a visible expression of assurance of salvation is, look at your prayer life. Do you pray with confidence and boldness in Christ? Notice verse 20. Do you display a love for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Because he talks in those verses about if you were born of God, you do not continue to sin. Now we know based on what he says in chapter 1 that if you sin, you should confess that. You have an advocate who will forgive you. That as a Christian, we still sin. But if it's a habitual habit, a certain sin in our life that we just are not dealing with, then that's a problem. We will sin. But now, as we are assured of our salvation, I think the issue is we, we struggle because we don't want to do those things. And we're taking steps in Christ to address them. He speaks in verse 18 of the one who God keeps safe. Probably a reference not to the believer, but to Jesus Christ. And because we are in Christ, we too are protected and kept. Just like Jesus would say to Peter, Satan wants to sift you like wheat, 
but I have prayed for you. As Tony prayed that, that Christ intercedes for us 24-7. So visible expressions would be our love for one another in Christ, uh, prayer life, the confidence and boldness in which we pray, uh, our love for the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Is that our primary motivation in coming to worship and in, in opening up the scriptures each day, that we're not doing these things as merely habits or because we'll feel guilty if we don't, but we're doing them out of love for our Lord and Savior. And then finally, you notice how the letter ends. In a, in a very kind of abrupt way, sort of a surprising way, verse 21, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. As an interesting thought here, idols we might think of, you know, physical representations that one makes, that one bows down and worships to. But there's nothing in the letter prior to this that would allude to that being a particular issue, especially since he's writing to generally believers. But perhaps he's using the word idols here in reference to any misconceptions, false teachings, false understandings that we have that contradict the word of God about God and the teachings of God. In other words, bringing us back to the thought that when you are more clear on the grounds of assurance, that it does not translate into spiritual lethargy or laziness. It actually should translate into a commitment to spiritual diligence. Because you have Peter writing in his last official letter in the scriptures saying, do everything to make your calling and election sure. So Peter, the one who I would say at times probably wrestled with assurance. He knew he was saved. But yet tells us even as he looks towards the end of his life, you know what? The ground to knowing you're saved match that with spiritual diligence to have that become more and more evident in your life through these very visual expressions that we looked at. Some of you may have realized that this past week marked the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11 and it splashed down back to Earth after its mission. So there's a lot of attention on uh, the lives of the different astronauts. Uh, and I found it interesting that often you read some of the, the quotable things they've said, you know, reading Genesis 1-1 while in space. Um, you know, this is what a giant step for mankind, that statement. But one of the other astronauts in the past, when they had landed on the moon and he saw the Earth, they asked him what his first thought was. And he said, I thought, this craft that we just landed in was built by the lowest bidder on earth. What a reality, a reminder to us that the work of salvation was not some hodgepodge put together by the, the lowest common denominator that could be found. But it is in every way a work designed and carried out by the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So if we question assurance. Let's remind ourselves of the grounds of it and what it should look like in each of us. Let's pray. Our gracious God, thank you that your word is unchanging. 
And so I pray as John spoke from his heart to these dearly beloved ones, that for each one of us here, there is nothing worse than either having no assurance or false assurance. May we have genuine assurance in Christ Jesus. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.